do that? And I said, no. <laughs> well, as Tom mentioned, my name is Kevin Miller. I am a part of the teaching team here. I also work with Tom uh, with, on campus with the Navigators, one of the Christian ministries at UC Davis. And I'm really excited to be here with you guys uh, on our week two of the series in Philippians, which we're calling Greater Than, meaning that Jesus is greater than everything. Uh, all of our, our sermons are online, and so if you, if you miss a week, I would encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, the, the beauty of going through a whole book is that there are things that we will get out of each and every sermon individually, but then as a whole, we will begin to see themes uh, and big picture vision that comes out of the book itself. So I'd encourage you to, to listen to all of those. And our goal as we go through Philippians uh, as, as uh, church staff and on the teaching team and the elders had some input, we, we thought a lot about this. And this is the goal that, that we feel like the Lord is leading us into in the book of Philippians. And it's this, that we would grow in maturity as a church and joyfully surrender everything to know Jesus more. That we would grow in maturity as a church and joyfully surrender everything to know Jesus more. And, and the reason I share this with you uh, is because, I, one, I want to be open and honest in the beginning. This is my hope. This is, our, this is our goal. This is what I hope that we as a church walk away with. But I don't want to convince you of this. Like, I don't want to convince you that we need to grow in maturity, that Jesus is worth it, that it's joy to surrender. I don't want to convince you of those things. I want God and his scripture to convince you of that. And so we tell you this so that as you're reading Philippians in our reading plan, as you're listening to sermon week after week for the next month and a half, that you would begin to see, is this, is this really what God has for us? Because I can tell you until I'm blue in the face, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. If God convinces you through the scriptures and through his word that, that this is true, then it gets really exciting for us as a church. And uh, I was reminded this week of just the importance of maturity. Uh, I have an 18-month-old son, and if uh, you're one of our, our NAV students, you've heard this story. Uh, 18 months, he acts like he's two, and uh, you guys know what I mean by that, all those parents out there, uh, the terrible twos, right? Uh, Cohen right now is probably the epitome of immature. And this week he showed me that uh, when he tried to headbutt me, right? So, so uh, I don't know about your guys' kids, but Cohen absolutely loves any electronic device with a screen, okay? Kindle, iPad, iPhone, doesn't matter. Computer, he is like attracted to it, glued to it. And he has this radar that he somehow knows where the screens in the house are, uh, even when I don't. So I, I lost my phone the other night, and somehow Cohen finds it, right? Cohen finds my phone. Uh, it's bedtime. I'm trying to get him ready for bed, and I'm, I'm trying to politely, but you know, strongly take the phone from him. And uh, as he learned recently, he, he knows how to express anger. So he yelled at me, uh, more of like a growl. And then he swung his head back and forward. And I mean, I don't know if he was intentionally trying to headbutt me, but that, that's what it seemed like. Uh, because he was upset that he uh, didn't get what he wanted and he was lashing out in anger. And I told him he was being immature, which didn't really seem to phase him. But the reason I tell you this story is because I think we need a reminder of what immaturity looks like so that we can see that we too are often immature with God. When it comes to God, 
who we know is a father to us and a good father, we often do the things that he tells us not to do, and we don't do the things that he tells us to do. We know we should read our Bibles and pray in the morning, but we sleep in because we binged on Stranger Things the night before. We've all been there, I know. We cling to idols and, and sin, even though we know it's bad for us. We don't share the gospel with our neighbors because we're afraid of what they'll think of us, even though we know that's what God wants us to do. And let's be honest, we get angry with God when things don't go our way. When he takes something from us that we think is good, doesn't allow us to have something that we want, we get angry at him. Church, I think there's a lot of ways in which we're spiritually immature, and we need help. And in the book of Philippians, Paul points us to spiritual maturity. So the book of Philippians is unique. Tom talked about this last week. It's not a corrective book. So Paul normally writes letters to churches with problems and says, hey, I have a solution to your problem. I have something you need to fix. I heard about this thing you're doing. It's not good. Let me correct it. But with Philippians, it's not like that. He's encouraging them. He's writing to them as a friend, old friends that are catching up. He is helping them to continue the good things that they're doing. And he's really praising them for what's happening in their church. And, and as he does this, he kind of gives us a glimpse into what does a spiritually mature church look like? Matt Chandler wrote a book on Philippians called To Live as Christ, also the title of, of this sermon this morning, and you'll see why. And Matt Chandler said this, it may be then that this letter, Philippians, is the best New Testament picture we have of what a maturing church looks like and what maturing people do. So church, we, we need to hear what Paul has to say to the church in Philippians. And so we're going to continue in chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Uh, if, you go, if you have a Bible, you can turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, would you please uh, raise a hand? One of our, our handsome young men around here will uh, grab a Bible and get that to you. Uh, we really do want everyone to have a Bible. And so if you don't own a Bible, then this is our gift to you. Uh, and we'd love for you guys to follow along and to take this home and to read it on your own. Uh, and to check in, is this really what, what God is saying to the church in, in, the Philippi, in Philippi? All right. As you guys are turning there to Philippians 1, I'm going to pray. Uh, I'm going to ask God to really uh, use this time for our good. Uh, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to hear from you. God, I acknowledge that you are a good father, that you are a perfect father, and I acknowledge that I am often an immature son. And God, we, we want to come to you humbly this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Would you give us a picture of maturity and help us to become mature? God, help us to trust you. Help us to love you more and to follow your word. God, help us to see Jesus more clear this morning. And as, we, as our vision of Jesus becomes clear, would you give us great joy in him? God, would you do this this morning? Because I can't. Be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Starting verse 19, I'm going to read through 30. Uh, the words are on the screen. Paul writes, For I know... That through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This text really speaks for itself in a lot of ways, and so I'm going to kind of just walk through it verse by verse, making some observations. And I want to say on the front end that this isn't going to be a really practical sermon. Okay, I'm not going to give you, you know, five easy steps to spiritual maturity. This isn't clickbait. Because uh, Paul, Paul doesn't do that. Okay, Paul, Paul doesn't give us easy steps to follow, a checklist to make sure that we're mature. And so I'm not going to do that. But what I am going to try and do from this passage is change our attitude. Maybe rattle our convictions a little bit. Shift our perspective. This isn't just an issue of, of activity. This is an issue of heart and mind. What do we think and what do we feel? So, no, it's not, it's not going to be the most practical, but I think it is life-changing. And what we do is, as we walk through the, the, the verses, we're going to ask this question. What would it look like, what would our lives look like, if Jesus was our greatest treasure? What would our life look like if Jesus was our greatest treasure? And we're going to start by asking, well, what did that look like for Paul? What did it mean for Paul that Christ was his greatest treasure? So we're going to start in verse 19, but you'll notice uh, verse 19, it's actually halfway through a sentence. So the sentence uh, Paul starts actually in verse 18, and he says this. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So as Tom mentioned in the video and talked about last week, uh, a little context, Paul is in prison. Most likely he is in Rome. Uh, he is in prison. Uh, we don't totally know who or why. Most likely it was because he was talking about Jesus and he offended the wrong people. Uh, and, and starting in verse 12, he, so he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, and starting in verse 12, he says, I want you to know brothers, and dot, dot, dot. And what he's doing is he's giving a personal update. 
Again, he's writing to friends, and he's saying, hey, I just want you guys to know, here's what's going on. Yes, I'm in prison. Let me give you an update. And he says, man, even though I'm in prison, uh, the gospel is still advancing. People are still hearing about Jesus, and because of that, I rejoice. And then he says in 19, he says, I I think I'm going to be delivered, which means he thinks he's getting out of prison. Okay, so that's the plan right now. Paul says, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get out of prison. But the most important thing to Paul is not whether or not he gets out of prison. In verse 20, he says that the most important thing, this is his eager expectation and hope, is that whether by life or by death, Christ would be exalted. Notice the emphasis. It's it's not, I eagerly expect and hope to get out of prison. That's not it. That's not what Paul's most concerned about. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that Christ will be made much of by my experience. Whether I get out of prison or whether I die here or some third option, doesn't matter as long as Christ is made much of in my example. This, This should give us a little bit of pause Especially if you're here today and you're like, man, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I don't believe in Jesus. This sounds weird. Why doesn't Paul care if he gets out of prison? I think if any single one of us were in prison, our first thought would be like, how do I get out of prison? But Paul doesn't seem to care if he lives or if he dies or if he gets out of prison. Like, how how can he say that? This is our first glimpse that Paul is not like an ordinary person. How can he say that? Well, he explains himself in verse 21, possibly one of the most important verses that Paul ever wrote. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As when I first read that verse, I was a sophomore in college. Uh, I was just starting to take my faith seriously. I had grown up in church but God was never really the first priority in my life. And I kind of went through this little bit of a rebellious Christian phase, not like rebelling against Christianity, but trying to be a cool Christian rebel. And so I thought, to live is Christ, yeah! And I wanted to get it tattooed on my wrist. Uh, so I like, took Sharpie, and then my mom's like, no, not happening at all. Uh, and then I calmed down a little bit, and I, I never ended up getting a tattoo. Uh, but one day I might still, I don't know. Uh, but, but this verse, like, it changed my perspective on the Christian life. To to live is Christ and to die is gain? Who says that? To live is Christ means that for Paul, his life had one purpose. That in every way, in every situation, at every moment, Jesus is everything. Jesus is his reason for living. And it, it might sound crazy, but it's not. Because the reality is we all have something that we're living for. We all have something that if we're honest, we would say, this thing is life for me. Maybe it's our our spouse or our family or our kids. the, The one thing we're most concerned about in life is our family. Maybe it's career or your reputation, your image, or to put it in a more spiritual way, your legacy. Maybe it's sports. Maybe for you, ball is life. Some of you got that joke. Maybe it's something darker. Maybe if you're really honest, money is what you live for. And you're not happy unless you have it. 
Maybe it's an addiction. Drugs or alcohol. Whatever you, you treasure most, whatever we treasure most, for, that, for us, that, that thing is life. And we all live for something. The difference between these things that I just mentioned and what Paul's talking about here, it's the second half of the verse. To die is gain. Because if you live for success in your job or your field, if you live for money, sports, or even for family, and you die, that's gone. That treasure is gone. But if you live for Christ, you will never lose that treasure. Missionary C.T. Studd wrote this poem. He said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, Paul, Paul realized something that every mature Christian must realize, something that we need to realize. And it's this. If, if our one desire is Jesus... If he is our biggest priority and if all we want more than anything else is to know him, then death is our greatest gain. Because when we die, we will see him as he is. Listen to Paul. This is in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. It's, it's foggy, like when you get out of the shower and you can't quite see your reflection. We see in a mirror dimly. But then, no mirror, we will see face to face. Now, I know in part. I understand a little bit. I, I kind of get it. But then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. If Christ is our greatest treasure, then death is no longer the enemy. When our desire is Christ, death becomes the door by which we get to meet him. And there's a logical question that follows, and I want to be really sensitive to it. Because I have a lot of friends who have struggled with depression, who are struggling with depression. I have friends and family that have tried to commit suicide. So so please hear me, I want to be sensitive to this. But if dying is our greatest gain, because that's when we get to see Jesus for who he is, then at some point in time we need to ask, what's the point of life? What are we doing here? If that's what we're aiming towards, then what are we doing here? What's the point of living? And I want to answer that question with another really important question. How many of you guys have been to Disneyland? Okay. I, guys, I needed to release tension. I got a little... It got a little tense. Uh, how many? Okay, Disneyland? How many? Okay. So obviously the best ride at Disneyland is Pirates of the Caribbean, right? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you can, there's no arguing about that. But if you want to, talk to me afterward. All right. I, guys, I'm not a big fan of Disneyland. Uh, I would probably be fine if I never went to Disneyland again. So Mitch, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but my wife loves Disneyland, so therefore I love Disneyland. And I can't wait to go back. Uh, and last time, last time we were at Disneyland, uh, we had to wait uh, 65 minutes for Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, it was actually 63 because I kept track because I was curious if their like, measurements were actually accurate. 63 minutes uh, to wait for the best ride at Disneyland. And our goal was to get on the ride. Like, that's what we wanted, right? We wanted to ride Pirates of the Caribbean. But we had 63 minutes to wait. So we did what anybody else does in line. We tried to make the most of it. 
We talked, we laughed, we ate some food that we had snuck in. I tried to get to know some of the people around us in line. There were some kids that we played with for a bit. I mean, it's an hour, over an hour. You got a lot of time there. And we, we tried to make the most of it. Our goal was to get on the ride, but that didn't mean we wasted our time in line. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. So he says, dying is my greatest gain, but while I'm here, I'm going to make the most of it. Look at verses 22 through 26. Paul says this. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. It means I'm going to get some work done. Yet, what shall I choose? I, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. But that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Because I come to you again. So he acknowledges, guys. He says, yeah, absolutely. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. He's not mincing words. He says, I'd rather die so I can be with my Savior. But while I'm alive, I'm going to continue to labor for Jesus and for your sake, the sake of the church. I'm concerned about your progress and your joy in the faith. I want you guys to know Jesus more. So I'm going to help you guys with that while I'm here. Some of you might have a hard time with this. I think at some point in time, uh, there are people that, that think, hear this and they think, that's not the Christianity I signed up for. This, this is a little bit above and beyond. And, and you might be tempted to think that Paul is being dramatic or that maybe he's some kind of uh, extra spiritual Christian and that this isn't really for us. And, and I want to point out, Paul's not being dramatic. He, he's not just being sentimental have you ever heard somebody say, I'm so hungry I could die? Like, that's not what Paul's doing here. Paul is making a rational statement based upon the value of knowing Jesus and the brevity of this world. Paul is being very, very logical here. Jesus explains this concept in a parable. It's a one-verse parable. In Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up, and in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Okay, so the man's in the field, he comes across this treasure, and he immediately recognizes it for what it is. He sees the value of it, and he does some, some quick mental math, and he adds up all of his possessions, his car, his house, his clothes, his reputation. He says, none of that even comes close to the value of what I just found in this field. And so he comes back from the field. And in his joy, he just sells everything. Garage sale, Craigslist, eBay, just gets rid of it all. He says, I don't care. I need to get rid of this stuff so I can get the field because it's so much more valuable than anything that I own. And I think if you were to watch the behavior of this man and not know what he knows, you would think he was crazy. You would think, you fool, you're getting rid of everything you own. Why are you doing that? But he knows. He knows what he found. That's all that matters. Who cares what the others think? 
This is worth it. Paul found the treasure in the field. He found Jesus, and no price was too high. And he couldn't contain his enthusiasm, guys. He was so excited about this that he wants the church that he's writing to to find this joy and this treasure. Guys, here's a theme that we're going to notice in Philippians, and it's joy. Joy, rejoice, glad. Look for those words as you read Philippians. More than any other letter that Paul writes, those words are present here in the letter to Philippians. It's littered with it because Paul wants them to know the joy that he has. And so uh, in verse 27, he shifts. He's kind of wrapping up his personal update, and he shifts his focus from him to them. And he says, you know, I, I want to depart and be with Jesus, but I plan on coming to you guys because I want to help you guys out. I want to see you progress and, and find joy. I want you guys to live for Christ. And so in verse 27, he says this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've been throwing around this word this morning, gospel. If you've been in our church, you've heard it a lot. You've heard it explained. You've heard it talked about. But I, I do, I do want to briefly touch on it. Because if, if we don't really understand what the gospel is, then this verse does not make sense. Then Paul's entire way of life doesn't make sense unless we understand this. So uh, if you're here and you're wondering, like, these Christians are weird. I have no idea how they ever got to this point. It's this. It's this next couple minutes here. The message of the gospel, simply put, is that through faith, through faith, God takes everything wrong about us and he exchanges it with everything right about Jesus. God takes everything wrong about us. Our flaws, our weakness, our sin, our guilt, our shame, and he exchanges it with everything perfect about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Our, our sin, it's on Jesus. The death that we deserved, he died. His perfection that he earned, it's on us. His innocence, it's ours. His resurrection from the dead, it's ours. Everything he earned, we get. Everything we earned, he took. And it changes everything about us. It changes what's valuable to us. It changes what's important. It changes what we live for and what we get excited about. And Paul says to the church in Philippi, he says, if this is true of you, then let your life reflect it. Live in a manner worthy of this gospel. And again, if you've been in Discovery, we've been here before. Last year, we went through Ephesians, and we saw this so beautifully in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul just goes on and on and on about what God has done for us, about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And then in chapter 4, he says, Okay, now that you've heard all this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. 
Let your life reflect the calling that you've received from God. And in Philippians, again, let your life reflect the gospel. Matt Chandler says it this way. He says, what does this word worthy mean? For Paul, it means ascribing worth. When he commands others to live in a worthy way, he means we should live in such a way that shows what we believe is of supreme worth. Church, what do we treasure? Do we treasure Jesus? Or do we treasure the things of this world? Money, success, stuff, experiences, our followers on social media? Do we, do we treasure the creator? Or do we treasure the creation? Do we long for the approval of man? Or do we thirst for the approval of God? You want to know what your, your treasure is? It's not that hard to find what you really treasure. Where do we spend our time? Especially our free time. Especially the free time when no one's watching us. What do we spend our free time doing? Where do we spend our money? After the bills have been paid, food's been bought, where does our extra money go to? Where does our extra energy go to? What do we, what do we daydream about? What keeps us up at night and wakes us up in the morning? What drives us and motivates us? If uh, you were to come over to our house, which many of you have, the first thing that you'd see is, I mean, let's be honest, I have an 18-month-old. You'd see a mess. Uh, there's toys everywhere. Uh, the house is rarely clean. But you step into our house, you see bookshelves. We have about four of them in our living room. Uh, and if you were to start reading the titles of the books, depending upon where you start, uh, you'd first think that Kevin is a nerd, uh, and you'd be right. So there's a, a whole shelf dedicated to science fiction and multiple copies of Lord of the Rings, actually. Um, because if I, if I need to lend Lord of the Rings to somebody, I still want to have a copy I can read um, for my annual read-through of Lord of the Rings. So uh, you'd see that, and you'd think, wow, Kevin, you must really treasure Lord of the Rings. Uh, and partly you'd be right. But then you get to the other shelves, and, and you'd see a lot of books about Jesus. You'd see a shelf that has about 15 to 20 copies of old Bibles that Carly and I have read through. You'd see books about the church about how to live the Christian life, how to share your faith, how to fight sin. Hopefully you'd get the idea that, wow, Jesus must be really important to this family. They should certainly read a lot about him. What about us, church? What, how would people know that Jesus is treasured here? What would they see in us that would indicate that Jesus is our greatest treasure? Paul points out a couple of things here that I, that I want to mention. Uh, this is in the last couple verses here. He says, Live in a manner worthy, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, so I want to point out three things that, that I see here. That if Christ is our greatest treasure, these things will be true of us as a church. First, unity. Paul says that he wants to see them standing firm in one spirit and one mind. Essentially, he wants to see that they're on the same page. Now, Tom is 
uh, one of my closest friends in the world, uh, and I, I love him. Uh, but if it weren't for Jesus, I honestly don't know that Tom and I would be friends, or at least not that good of friends. I think Tom would agree with me on this. Uh, our personalities are pretty different. Uh, he is calm and quiet. I'm loud and easily excitable. Uh, he talks a lot. I talk, no, I talk a lot. He talks a little. He lives in Woodland. I live in Davis. And uh, he doesn't like Phil's coffee, which you guys can pray for him. I'm not really sure why that is the case. But Phil's just opened up downtown. Uh, it's possibly the best place in downtown Davis right now. Uh, Katie knows. I see Katie there. So, yeah. Uh, but Tom doesn't like it. So, I, you know, I don't know that if Tom and I, if it weren't for this one thing, I don't know that we'd be friends. But, but this, we have this in common. Tom values Jesus more than anything else in this world. Tom values Jesus more than his family, more than his work, more than any of the stuff that he owns, more than himself. And, and we're by no means perfect, but I'd like to think I value Jesus too more than anything else. And because of that, Tom and I have a lot in common. This is how our church needs to operate. Coming together as one despite all of our differences. And guys, I know. I know there's a lot of differences. I know we're a weird group, and that's okay. But when we make Jesus our greatest treasure, the differences don't matter. So if Christ is our greatest treasure, I think there would be unity. People would see that there is a group that by every external standard should not get along, and yet here they are working together. Because there's unity there. Two, uh, second, I think that Paul wants to see that they have a common purpose. He said, I want to see that you guys are one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. Church, are we, are we striving for the sake of the gospel in Davis? Is it our goal to make Jesus look good in everything? Or are, are we trying to advance our name? Are we trying to make discovery great? Are we, are we more concerned with our reputation as a church than we are with Jesus' reputation in the community? Have we lost track of the gospel and, and the need that the gospel has to advance are we just trying to maintain? I know that this pastor search hasn't always been easy, but I'm encouraged to see that as a church, the heartbeat of the gospel advancing has still been beating. But church, don't lose sight of that. If Christ is our greatest treasure, we will have a common purpose. Striving for the sake of the gospel means doing whatever it takes to see the gospel get out, to see more people hear about Jesus. There will be unity, there will be purpose. And third, Paul says there will be perseverance. He says that he wants the church to stand firm because it's been granted to them not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for Jesus' sake. You guys, here, here's a rub. If, if Jesus promised health and wealth and happiness and joy and to take away all of our problems, there would be a lot more people for whom Jesus is their greatest treasure. But he doesn't promise that, does he? He promises persecution, suffering, hardship. He promises joy. Do not miss sight of that. He promises joy and peace. But it's often through tribulation. 
Church, how far will our affection for Jesus take us? How valuable is he to us? Would we give up our sin and our, and our idols? Are we willing to obey him in all things? Are we willing to, to change our future plans? To let go of a little bit of the comfort and security that we've earned or that we think we've earned? Will we let go of success, of pride, reputation? Would we suffer for him? If Christ is our greatest treasure, if we see him for what he is, the treasure in the field of surpassing value, then there is no cost too high. To be a Christian is to identify with Jesus and to endorse him, to represent him, follow him, to be his ambassador and to suffer for him. Now, I'm not naive. I don't think that any of us are going to be thrown in prison anytime soon. Maybe some of you will. I think some of you here, God might have overseas missions in your future. I think God might call some here to go. In that case, maybe you will. Maybe you'll experience a little bit of the suffering that Paul experienced. But my guess is most of us won't. Most of us will, will stay here, continue to serve Jesus here. But we will suffer whether it's ridicule, whether it's a promotion that we give up because we're not willing to disobey Jesus, there will be suffering, and we need to be prepared for that. And I want to I end with a story uh, of a man and a woman whose greatest treasure was Jesus. Some of you guys might know the story. His name was Jim Elliott. Uh, Jim was born in Portland, Oregon in 1927. He was uh, a gifted athlete speaker and a linguist. Yeah, I got his picture up there. Handsome guy. He's also really good at wrestling. When he graduated college, he moved to Ecuador to work as a missionary because he wanted to bring the gospel to people who hadn't heard yet. And while he was there, he and four other young men wanted to bring the gospel to a specific tribe, the Heraani, who were known for being violent towards outsiders and other tribes. In January uh, 1956, after years of working in Ecuador, helping other tribes, trying to gain access to the Heraani, they did make contact with the tribe over a, a course of a couple of months. And at one of their first meetings, they were ambushed by 10 of the warriors from the tribe who killed all five men. And their bodies were, were found in the river. Jim Elliott was 28 years old trying to bring the gospel of Jesus to a people who hadn't heard it. And a few years earlier, in 1949, he had written this in his journal. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. See, Jim Elliot realized what Paul had realized, which is this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But there's one other person in the story that I want to mention. Uh, when Jim died, he left behind his wife, Elizabeth, and their daughter, Valerie. And I might struggle with this one because uh, I'm 28 years old, and uh, I have a wife and one child, and so I, this feels really real to me. When Jim died, Elizabeth was 29, and she lived until she was 88. She died in 2015, just a couple years ago. And when Jim died, 
after a period of mourning and, and kind of figuring out what was next, Elizabeth Elliot went back to continue reaching out to the Hera'ani tribe. For two years, she worked as a missionary to that tribe. Uh, she worked as a missionary in other parts of, of South America, and eventually she returned to the United States, where for the last 50 years of her life, she was a speaker and an author and a mom. She wrote over, over 20 books, uh, five or six of which, which are on our shelves, that have been really helpful for me in my own walk with God. You see, Jim Elliot got to die for Christ, but Elizabeth lived for him, devoting her time and her gifts to furthering the gospel of Jesus. And she wrote this. It's a lesser-known quote, but I think it's just as powerful. She said, there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. Guys, I don't think many of us, to be honest, I don't think many of us in here will have the privilege of getting to die for Jesus. I just don't think it's in our future. But I do pray that all of us would learn what it looks like to live for him. Let me pray. God, even as I share this and I read this from your word again, I'm struck by almost the absurdity of it. God, this feels like a hard teaching. It feels hard to, to let go of the things that we cling to and the, thing, the good things that you've given us to say it doesn't matter. I'm living for Jesus. And God, as I prayed earlier, this isn't something that I can convince people of. It's not even something I can convince myself of. So God, would you convince us of it? Would you help us today and as we, we finish the book of Philippians, would you help us to see Jesus more clearly? God, would you uncover the value of this treasure that we found? And would you teach us, Lord, what does it look like to live for him? What does it look like to joyfully give all for Jesus' sake? God, thank you for the example of those who have gone before us that have paved the way and said, yes, it is worth it. Jesus is worth it. God, we, we as a church want to grow to maturity and we want to live for Jesus. Can you help us to do that? Amen.